0: KCRW sponsors include Make It Universal and Rotten Tomatoes, presenting Scene on the Screen with Jacqueline Coley, a new podcast about the people at NBC Universal and the movies that define them. Available wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. From KCRW
1: Santa Monica and KCRW.com, it's the treatment. the treatment i'm elvis mitchell the last time my guest was here he was here smoking i actually did that <laughs> at the peninsula hotel where you were smoking i see your cigarettes nearby he's two-time academy award winner i still think of him as being a comedic actor sean penn his news documentary for paramount plus is superpower first of all i can't thank you enough for being here it's great to have you here as always great to be here and it's a movie that really demands your attention because you do so many interesting things in it for one you never change the timbre of your voice for the voiceover. It's really very matter-of-fact. You don't make anything dramatic. You don't do any dramatic readings of, of that stuff at all. I don't want to ask you about that choice because it's a very specific and deliberate choice, isn't it?
2: Yeah, it is a deliberate choice. It's a feeling of not wanting to get in the way of this bigger story. Obviously, the, you know, part of the approach was going to sort of offer a, people to jump in the backpack and go on the trip and to sort of personalize what the experience was in a way that would allow that would create the familiarity not an academic perspective but just kind of learn watch listen and reflect as you go so the voiceover i found that the best time and place for me and it's one of the kind of crazy advantages of new technologies was that I I recorded it all, Um, had a great sound mixer. Uh, Craig Mann did a a first pass and then John Ross. And John was very open to the idea of uh, using the stuff I recorded alone in a room at home on my phone. And I would just send him the files. Really? Yeah, it's all recorded on my... We tried. We went in the studio and tried and I I just couldn't quite get... I could hear the acting every time, and i didn't want that i didn't want that to i didn't want to weigh in that way.
1: We should say the film looks at basically a year in the life of the Ukraine, and you're immersing yourself in it, and like a number of us, like me, when I first heard about Zelensky, we hear of course that he was a puppet and, and there's a presumption you make. Forgive me, we hear an actor become a politician, and given that he had been known for comedy. We all sort of thought these things, and given that the previous person in his position had been an oligarch, we just made assumptions about that. And I'm guessing you made some assumptions like that, too, because you more or less say that in the film.
2: Well, the one assumption I did not make and I don't make is this low-hanging fruit thing. And, of course, we're all aware of it, that when an actor, let's say, particularly a a relatively successful actor... And he was very successful, he was even in Russia, right? And it's a lot of fun, and maybe sometimes that sort of weaponizable thing to mar- d- diminish or marginalize uh, someone because they have, oh God forbid, a passion for communicating with other people, and maybe some worldliness that the average citizen doesn't have because they've been able to travel and and see and meet people that are, you know, inform them their worldview. Uh, so I don't have that feeling of. As a generality about actors where I think, you know, I think it's much more when I think about Donald Trump, who, you know, certainly was not, not a good actor, but uh, was a communicator. A, a, a communicator and an entertainer. And it reminded me of what John Huston said about Ronald Reagan. And he said, that, you know, it's one thing to have an actor in the White House. Quite another, a bad actor. <laughs> so you got a good actor like Zelensky. It, it says to me that this is somebody who, you know, before he was an actor, he was someone who yearned to express and share dreams and visions with other people. And that sounds like a precedent to me.
1: It it does. But, you know, it's it's, it's so fascinating because it's I do look at this as being an education for you, as well as those of us watching, because, you know, I've spent time in Poland, and it's chilling to realize how close that is.
2: Yeah. You have one foot in Poland and one in Ukraine at the same time.
1: Oh, I, absolutely. And there's a section, I guess, about an hour in where you guys are three kilometers, which is less than a mile away from the front, yeah. from that border, and you're going on foot. And I just, again, going back to that narration where you were marking on what you're leaving there at the border, mm. which is all those women who yeah. have who are going the other way, who have they have to go away from their their men who are off fighting that war and they're leaving with their children and the few possessions they have, and you kinda of think in watching this I want to ask you about being there. It's so odd to see something like that in the twenty first century,
2: isn't it? I cannot accuse myself of having fully processed the big picture of it, the part that one knew immediately, I talk about it a little in the film, that we were geographically in the middle of extreme history. There was a heartbreak that one felt that was globally impactful, That and it has to do exactly with the way you framed the question, that here in, in this modern era, such a sort of old-school barbarism could really play out on this scale and. This invasionary, marauding invasionary force, criminal force coming into this country that had been bit by bit building a real democracy and the culture within it that is sort of exponentially making those changes for towards the, the freedom that they recognize that they own and deserve, you know, for it to be, you know, suddenly attacked. It was just ugly and sad and and then you know the only thing you balance it with is that all the news that we hear about the courage and you know the the, the unity of Ukraine it's real it's there you see it in everyone and it's an extraordinary thing to feel i think it's that the center of the movie for me is the re- the reflection to do with what it is to feel uh part of a community and you know sadly we've experienced you know very brief periods where we we sort of tasted that so i would say 911 did that for a couple of weeks and i think this is a world opportunity for us to figure out how we can support not only the the freedom effort which is a sadly a war effort for the ukrainians but also you know with President Zelensky, would the Ukrainian people sort of be working to be prepared f- to help make that ex- the example of a unity that lasts in peacetime so that we can all then maybe play off that and find the same in our own countries?
1: You talk about community here and you talk about it in, in Superpower, but I want to ask you this because you've been so many places where you must have seen community come about in the worst moments in Haiti. Uh, in New Orleans, these places where the, there was devastation and all people had to rely on were other people. And that does really sort of bring people together, mm-hmm. doesn't it?
2: Yeah, you know, it goes back to growing up from the time I was 10 to 17, I, I was living kind of in, in what was then considered North Malibu, Point doom, Pretty rural at the time. Not a lot of commuters uh, in the 1970s. And every five years still to this day, uh, we, we get a big wildfire and for, for a lot of us, it's the only time we ever smile at our neighbors, <laughs> <laughs> you know? And, and so there'd been that experience throughout, you know, in my childhood where man, you know, especially as a kid, if, you know, of course, this is not disregarding the damage that would happen. And in some cases, deaths, all kinds of damage environmentally, animals, people, houses, businesses. But for the kid, for us, the kids, A, you were out of school <laughs> and uh the smell of it was great when the chaparral burns and you did feel like, you know, what they would it looks kind of it goes from daytime to a kind of, you know, post apocalyptic red and you're in a it's like a dream world. And you mix that with people suddenly reaching out to help each other and you see that all you would see you we will see it again we, we see it every time the fires happen and you'd like to say what's my role like what's, what's my role here and we want to keep this feeling going it's a better life and and if we can do it when the fire is there or we can do it when the fire is not there um i, I guess that's the answer to getting out of the law of the jungle and just want to tear each other apart all the time
1: i remember i was living in new york uh around nine eleven. i remember what it was like when people would give each other cabs. And there was this sort of sense of you would go to look at the Times every day to see who was being reported on as being missing. And and you were looking for hope that you would find in in other people. You felt like a citizen of, of a place rather than a resident of it. That thing, I think, that links you to all these places is you are in that best sense a global citizen you you look for places where you can connect to people in that way and get past the politics and get past the institutional behavior and see what makes these places what makes haiti what it is what is it that makes ukraine what it is Mm. what is it that makes new orleans different from any place else in this country Mm -hmm. i think there's a part of you that's curious about those being connected to community in that way isn't there
2: i think increasingly so you know sort of long past due that that uh, layer of the onion gets peeled enough. There's a BB King, King line about I had to play an A chord once for a half an hour before I heard it, and I've heard the A chord of community. I've discussed it. I might have even preached it throughout my life, uh, but not really lived it. And I think of this with, you know, the film Superpower is as much about Ukraine as it is me wanting to join a conversation. Let's say in particular with. Right now, just the way things are trending, in particular with young—not so young—Republicans in the country, or conservatives, I should say. And I—I I think that there are different times, which different schools of political thought, some of which we know are hardwired from the way people are raised and what their parents believed and the neighborhood they come from, and others that come from economic pressures and others that come from being seduced by the way either populist leaders or certain media frames things. and While I can argue there are nearly as significant problems on the far left in the in, in where we are with the extremes, I think that now where the conservatives we are seeing are starting to fade back from what had been an initial great amount of support for the U.S. Solidarity and, and resourcing of uh, Ukraine. And I, I think it's analogous to when we watch a great football player running the ball downfield and there are 20 times where it's, he's absolutely going to be taken down and probably seriously injured if he doesn't yield at some point his body to that fall and hold on to that ball to, to go into the next down. But we all know those images are indelible, and we see sometimes in slow motion the magic of that courage to believe you're going to get past this one too, and then they do. And they escape that tackle, and they jump over, and, and why do they do that? They do that because in the athletic sense of their vision, there is a commitment to the original idea a belief that this ball can get over that goal line. And someone who might be equally athletic, but doesn't have the courage of that mindset to fail tremendously in the belief, and then we see over and over in so many parts of life where when someone puts the belief ahead of the fear of failure, it's sustainable. I see what's happening with the conservatives as fearful of the tackle and not a courage that holds on to the belief that they out loud shared only a year and a half ago. They also, with us, we put our Ukrainian flags outside. That was bipartisan. That's an opportunity. Because Democrats certainly have that thing too. This is not, it's not only Republicans who who find an era of cowardice. And so why not all just say, okay, on this next play, starting today, let's let's go for goal. It's the treatment.
1: I'm talking to the director and color commentator, Sean Penn, this new <laughs> director, is superpower, which is on Paramount Plus. You can also showcase at W.com slash the treatment. In a moment, more from Oscar-winning actor-turned-documentary director Sean Penn on his doc-directing debut *Superpower*, streaming now on Paramount+. Let me ask you to consider becoming a member of KCRW now during our fall pledge drive. It's easy; just go to kcrw.com/give. More Sean Penn on a special edition of *The Treatment* to come. Now here's more Sean Penn on *The Treatment*. What this really is about, and it's funny, some of the things that you've done as a director are about gaining perspective. Uh, I think about the films you've directed. These are characters who often start and end alone, (laughs) who have to gain perspective. And as you were talking, I was thinking there's a, a session with a young soldier that almost bookends the film where he talks about being afraid about The lack of courage that Um, things Zelensky has, and by the end of the movie, a year later, he sees he's great. I won't say exactly (laughs) how he puts it, but he says he's great, and 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 that's what we're talking about. But that's what even attracts you as a filmmaker is getting perspective. At the end of the pledge, I don't know. (laughs) Well, that's sort of a
2: no good deed (laughs) will go unpunished story, yeah.
1: Yeah, but there's still he has he's a different person by the end because he's. He's got perspective. And this story is for you getting perspective on this. It was this thing we talked about at the beginning, but I don't want to say educating because that makes it sound too pro forma, but understanding, that understanding we're talking about, that young soldier who is, I mean, he's rock hard and just, I'm going to fight here, but I don't have any faith in this system. Right. And by the end he goes, no, he's one of us. <laughs> yeah. And there is this community that you're talking about that has suffused, at least it offers hope by the end of the movie, doesn't it?
2: I like to think it does. And, you know, I guess the word that I was going after was context. And I've talked about this a little bit, but, you know, through the years, um, narratives have largely written by the imaginings or the regurgitations of journalists, you know, who took the time for whatever reasons, good or bad, or, or sensationalized to focus on it. My travels, you know, I've I've had the experience of having the narrative kind of written for me because I haven't in most cases with the exception of one that we can go into but I, You know, I've always known that if I had a camera with me anywhere that, that they that the Assumption was going to be that I'm there to you know That's what the same thing about, you know marginalizing a, an actor running for president. You marginalize an actor doing anything and the assumption is it's for you know attention or or, or self-promotion in some way, so so much of the time there's no record of any of the travels that I took and some of the things that I would have liked to have been able to share with people. And I think I was convinced this time to, you know, say, okay, let's do this. And um what it is is I'm sure that if I had not had the financial security to go off and travel as they did to Ukraine, or if I didn't have you know what I refer to as the you know kind of weathered but famous face that I have to get that gets me you know access to people and places a lot of times. if I were just me without those two things, I like to think I'm reasonably bright, I certainly am interested I care about you know certainly humanity, if not some humans <laughs> and uh <laughs> and uh based on. Most of the coverage, from the print coverage to the electronic coverage that I've seen of Ukraine, I think I'd be very confused and without context. And so I wanted to bring context. While I have opinions that are pretty clear and happen as the film goes, it is not necessary watching this film to, to share the opinion. The context, I think, is... Irrefutable, and that's something that we all were very diligent about because that's what I think has been missing from a lot of the uh, reporting on this. And there are some big issues that really should be put on the record more strongly. You know, I, I mean, I, I think not enough people know that the United States pledged in writing. To uh, the the Budapest memorandum, whereby, in essence, if Ukraine gave up what at the time was the third largest nuclear arsenal in the world, if they would give that up in an effort for proliferation, we would assure them that we and Russia and others assure them that there can not only not be any invasive action militarily, but even the threat of it would summon all for the force of NATO against that invader. And we've broken the deal. And I don't know how we go back to other countries as a representative of deproliferation if we've already... Done that. So those those are some of the I mean, things you're that we these need, things need to that you, be reminded of. You,
1: you, you throw of. me back to Chile and, and in effect doing the same thing there. But rather than go over all the sort of broken promises that we've we've offered up to people in that way, what I will say is that you when you were talking about context, I just immediately flash back to Colonel Vindman talking about what should have happened there because that that moment when he was testifying was so politicized yeah. that we weren't allowed perspective what yeah. he had to offer, what he had to say. And he was so, not only was he defending himself, but then after, you know, coverage had come up, then there were attacks on his <laughs> on his position, and he was trying to be matter-of-fact about it. So I you think he, get, was,
2: he was prescient on it.
1: Yeah. Oh, completely. But this is what happens so often in this film, and, and I want to ask you about that, because when you make a documentary, sometimes you start to make one thing, and you get something else. And there's so many cases in this film where we see that with perspective, with that point of view, that, that piece of information that was missing. And and this film, to me, is weirdly like a detective story, this accretion of information, picking up one piece after another. And I wonder if that was part of the... fun is not the word I want to use, but in putting the story together that you got to see that you're actually building this thing that's about information and about the information that offers a lot more of a point of view than people might have had.
2: I think that it, maybe it's an oversimplification. And, and you had said the fun of, and I think that there's something in that, in that I always find myself much more, this again, this is a simplification, but interested in the question and the answer, right? And that's true with fiction, as well as with something like this, which and it's my first time, directing a documentary. And I don't know that I would know another way to do it. You know, there are so many exceptional documentary filmmakers out there making things that I would not know how to make. And I, I guess it's just as simple as saying, well, what, what's the gap? What am I not seeing in documentary film that that I can do? Maybe particularly well, I hope. It's not personalized in that it's Sean Penn's personal. That's as relevant as, as whatever part of it gets some eyes on the film and as uh, problematic as what keeps eyes off of the film, uh, some eyes. But it can be whole unto itself. But if, if I just go in with what value-added I can be, and you know there are around 20 documentaries on the same general subjects, Ukraine, Uh And I think only one other has gotten distribution. And I've seen, for example, Evgeny Avaniski's movie, uh, which is the companion piece to the extraordinary Academy Award-nominated film he made about the 2014 uh, Maidan revolution, uh, Winter on Fire, that Netflix was good enough to, when the invasion happened, to put free on YouTube around the world, and really an important movie. And then he he made, more recently, uh, Freedom on Fire during the, this period of time. And so here you have this leader in the documentary community on this subject fighting for a distributor. I don't know why that is. I don't know why we're in an era where something, things like this, it seems to me that everybody's at home watching uh, documentaries.
1: Yeah, but I think, you know, you know enough to know that when you posit a documentary about an area that immediately inflames people one way or the other, it's easier to not touch that. There was a time when people were attracted to those kinds of films. You wanted something that was, use an old-fashioned word, muckraking, or or tried to sort of tell us that there's more to the story than we were being told. I mean, go back to hearts and minds. There's so many films that were trying to do, that wanted to do that. Mm-hmm. And there was interest in that. And now, because we're in a... We live in a world where there's so much information that those documentaries, which are extraordinary pieces, by the way, they're great pieces of filmmaking. But because of the subject matter, I mean, it's going back to your film. Well, Go maybe ahead. that's
2: why this has gotten, it wasn't my, originally my intention to be in the film. That was, a, that was a function of, you know, and this is when it was this lighthearted tale before the, the build up of the Russians, when we were approaching it as a kind of a whimsical tale of this comedic actor turned president. But we couldn't get financing. And then they, it was suggested by financiers that if I would be in it, they would they would take it on. And I finally said, okay, this is a time. I'll go ahead and now share one of these trips I take, you know. And then I was glad that it ended up as it did because, of course, where the story went, it would have been hard to not be the guide, you know, on camera. But I I like to think, I hope that what's different about this also is that it directly addresses the too much information society problem. It makes effort to give really clear context, so that this isn't another wash of white noise about Ukraine. That it's that it, it is some cohesive, something you can kind of hang your hat on to know and, and and to not go beyond that. To not insert it with so much information. I think that by staying with this, in essence, the last. 30 years since it became an independent country.
1: Yeah, we forget it's a new independent country. Yeah. We forget how, how new it is. And yeah. Just since 2014, it took this whole other turn, and because of th- perception, it still wasn't taken seriously, the, the threat of Russia and, and what standing up that threat could mean.
2: Right. And yet, it was taking itself seriously in the threat of Russia, and it was taking itself seriously as being kind of new blood new fresh perspective on the value of freedom and democracy this wasn't the country that had lavished or expected it their whole lives and having been under the thumb for so long they have this the power of that innocent appreciation that we should look at them as leaders in the way that i think great leadership Gives into and recognizes inverted leadership, and because they have that wonder at that thing that we claim to value and we do value it, but we so take for granted what freedom is, and so we should recognize that they can lead us back to leadership, and we can all lead together if we if we do that, and I think they are as much as anything else our path. Back to the aspiration that is the best of America. I'm always cognizant of saying, you know, we know that it always did leave some people behind, but the aspiration itself is of incredible value. And again, it's having the courage to believe in that play and keep running that ball and keep dodging those tackles together so that this, the whole team wins. And so I see Ukraine as, you know, if, if we take the opportunity to support them. We will reap extraordinary benefits, not only in principle and psychosocially, and for young people to believe in this country's ability to be decisive in, 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 the, in the cause of its of freedom around the world, but also in the global economy. we got to have the balls of Ukrainians to do it.
1: Well, that kind of that thread that runs throughout the film, the balls of Ukraine. We'll so, take a break. My guest is director Sean Penn. His new film, first film is documentary. Director is Superpower, which is on Paramount Plus. It's the treatment this morning. Come stay with us in a moment. More from Oscar-winning actor turned documentary director Sean Penn. His thoughts on Marlon Brando and Ukraine. His documentary Superpower now streams on Paramount Plus. Let me ask you to consider becoming a member of KCRW now during our fall pledge drive. Just go to kcrw.com slash give. More Sean Penn on a special edition of the treatment to come.
0: KCRW sponsors include Make It Universal and Rotten Tomatoes. Join Jacqueline Coley as she hosts a brand new podcast, Scene on the Screen. Meet the innovative people at NBC Universal as they share their journeys, inspirations, and the movies that define them. Each episode is an intimate and fun conversation about the impact of film. Scene on the Screen is available now wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Introducing the KCRW donation car, designed to be recycled
1: He's still here, Sean Penn. I haven't scared him away, yet it's The Treatment, which you can also hear at KCRW.com slash The Treatment. His new film, first film as documentary director, Superpower. God, there's so much to talk to you about here, but I want to go back to these things that clearly attract you. I mean, just the quoting from time of your life at the beginning and end of this, which is a piece that has huge emotions in it and is about coming to understand yourself. And, and fighting to come to understand yourself, which is, you could say that about all of William Sororian's work, that sort of battle to understand who you are, because as an Armenian-American, he was constantly having to explain himself to people and hated having to explain people who didn't want to bother to learn what his history was, which, <laughs> which is what this film was about. I want to talk to you about the first time you encountered that, that piece. How old were you when you saw it or, or read
2: it? I'm an August birthday, so I graduated high school at 17, I went straight from high school, having noticed my report card was not going to get me straight into um, a great law school, let's say, which is what I had dreamed of. I had all the books of F. Lee Bailey. I thought I was going to be a a litigator in criminal law. No kidding. (laughs) Uh, But I hadn't thought until graduation day that that my grades would matter and that now I'd have to do extra schooling at a junior college, et cetera. And I had started working on Super 8 movies and as a director of Super 8 movies, you know, I, I, I liked it, but because we made them, you know, we had the uh, ectochrome film that uh, with a sound strip on it.
1: Oh, you guys, you guys sound super? Oh, sound, nice. yeah.
2: So Super 8 sound and we could go shoot, for example, in, in Westwood where the storefronts kept some lights on uh, with the light at night and shoot these crime dramas and such with our friends. But you the only people you could get to shoot them were, were the ones who like me forgot they had homework to do. Uh this explains the grades. <laughs> consistently. Yeah. And so I found myself having to act in them because I just to populate the cast there we we didn't have enough people so I was acting in the things we were been making together and so on. And then a, an actor named, named Anthony Zerby came to career day. And now I I, haven't grown up around this. Both of my parents had been actors, then my father became a director. It never occurred to me to be part of it that way. I I never, I I was thinking lawyer or police officer. Did you just not want
1: want to do what your parents did? Was that part of it too? No, no,
2: I just, it just didn't, it didn't occur to me that that might be my path. Until now, it's kind of merged and I was doing it because I found myself interested in shooting films my younger brother Christopher is the one who got me into shooting films he was making them before I was. he was making these Vietnam War epics when he was like 12 and I saw that you could do this with this sound strip but you know we'd get our splicers and the editing and, and then so I was subconsciously kind of getting into it and as you'll recall because now that's not you know, that's going to be oh, 1978 uh, when I graduated high school there was a thing called the American cinema at the time. So when you're getting interested in film and every time you step into a theater, you're seeing a world event. You're seeing masterful American films in that period. It starts to look like a pretty
1: interesting field. We were just talking about Verite before. There's so much handheld in those films. You used to felt like, this is kind of what I'm doing,
2: right? Yeah, Yeah. Uh, or we can can do what they're doing. Exactly, sure. And... uh, so i got involved with a repertory company right away and this is all going back to the time of your life and its use in in superpower and i got in an acting school and i just became obsessed with with the whole world of it in the in the repertory company one had to put in about a year of building sets and doing lighting and sound and cleaning toilets and selling tickets for the, and to get to be a full member and then uh, and that was off in north hollywood and then in town, I was taking. I was going to Peggy Fury's acting class. It became my whole world. I tried to get an agent. I tried to do all that stuff. You know, you. I couldn't get a represent. I auditioned for every agent in town, but I was getting a good reputation amongst the other actors in in my acting class, and a lot of them were working actors and known, you know, very, very talented people, and so. I was getting introduced into some auditions without an agent, through those kinds of things. and One of those led me to a production of The Time of Your Life that was being done at the Beverly Hills Playhouse, directed by a restaurateur, his name is Roy, and he had a place on Sunset called Roy's, where I guess all the celebrities went. So he had decided he wanted to direct a play, and he had all these friends from this popular restaurant on Sunset that he was hosting people on, and he got a bunch of famous people to be in this play. So my first job, it was an equity-waiver production, so you don't get paid for that, but my first role in something was with all these people I knew who they were. And and it was a, you know, kind of a, a crazy group, it was Penelope Milford, who had been in Coming Home, Jane Fonda, and she'd been nominated for Academy Award. Yeah. Bobby Newarth was in the cast, and Carlos Palomino, the boxer, and Marissa <laughs> Berenson. And all, I can go on like that, and then, and me. So it was a big deal for me, a really big deal. Like, okay, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to find my way in this bro- world and business. And on the third rehearsal, we were rehearsing at the Actors Studio West here. And uh, on the third rehearsal, because I'm playing the, the newsboy in the Soroyan play, and I come in and I am required to sing When Irish Eyes Are Smiling. And I've done so on the first two rehearsals. And on the third rehearsal... The directors said, "Sean, uh, you know, just talk the song through today." And uh, I had a feeling this was going, and I got fired because when I sing, it damages people. <laughs> <laughs> and 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 that and I knew that that was true, but somehow I'd gotten through the re- audition and into this third rehearsal. Wait, you heard Carlos Palomino's ears? That's <laughs> yeah, that's
1: right. a feat. <laughs>
2: <laughs> so, but. When Samuel French was still up there, with Sunset, sold, shoot, sold yeah. all the uh, playbooks, that yeah. all, all us actors would go, when we were um, assigned a scene from a play, you'd go and pick up your copy of that play at Samuel French's store, and I had the, the playbook for the time of your life. And in it, I, I gather in some productions, not the one I was in, this quote that I've used in the film was he put it there as for the reader in the published version, but it's not part of the play. It's not part, yeah. There were a few productions I'd heard about where a speaker would come out and open the play by reading that.
1: Really? That's kind of putting like the too fine a point on it.
2: <laughs> Perhaps. Uh, and also, in some ways, once you've read that, you're kind of, you're not going to top it. That's why I save it to the end <laughs> on this one. Uh, and, it, you know, oh, I think it's character building to get fired, but but the biggest benefit was that it introduced me to that, and I figured out a way to get it printed small enough so that I could keep it in my wallet, and did for years. So, and not only for me, I I had many printed, and when I travel, I would take these wallet size prints of that Sirois quote, and if I met someone who I thought would value it, I would spread it, you know, and hand them out. You know, genuinely hit me in this case as the accord that took. Baby King a half hour to hear. I knew it was the acorn all these years, but now it all came together. And so it really does represent, I'd like to say that I live by that thing. I aspire to, and I think I'm getting a little closer every day.
1: Have you kind of graduated to the last stanza of it, which is the most beautiful part, because it really is about almost all of human emotion.
2: Yeah, I, I guess, yes, I, I think I might be all the way through to that stage, but I have interruptions of great frustration with people where I'm less uh, <laughs> elegant in my responses.
1: It's so funny, by the way, it's a Treatment. My guest who I know from the play Slab Boys is Sean Penn. <laughs> His film as director on Paramount Plus is Superpower. You can also hear the show at com slash The Treatment. I still think of you as a stage actor.
2: Yeah, I guess I do too.
1: And, and when you said that, I just thought, I don't think I've ever mentioned to you seeing that play. And I wonder what your memories are of doing that.
2: I loved it. I had a kind of crisis about acting in the theater that I, I may have overcome now. But I did a play, uh, Sam Shepard had written a new play. And Sam directed so You in San Francisco
1: for a yeah, while, right? Yeah. You did
2: it up in San Francisco, and there were a number of us in the cast who were very well known from movies or television. Yeah. It, the theater is implicitly interactive, and even in my last plays in New York, last things that I had done. I could tell there was a lot of um, front row seat grabbing, and by that I mean the first several rows of so people were not really theater goers or interested theater goers. They were looking to see the pores of celebrities. And you could feel that from the stage and we'd become that kind of, you know, celebrity culture more and more and it was disillusioning, you know, and, and it would take. I was. I think I'm sensitive to that stuff, and the energy of the room made it less appealing to to work on the stage. And in San Francisco, we had, you know, probably two back rows of very devoted theater goers. There is that in San Francisco, but that play with all of the name power that it had, I think we had more Palo Alto tech people that you know sort of like that was the hot ticket to you know for someone afraid to ask their a girl out or a guy out or whatever they are doing uh that was the hot ticket to be populated by people who were not really interested in the theater and there were conversations going on while we were on stage you know are you serious oh my god so i and i remember when i was in rehearsal i had had a a phone call from marlon brando and he and I had not, we had not been on speaking terms, which would happen intermittently. Uh, what, had,
1: what caused it that last time? Do you remember? It, it,
2: it was always. He, he, I don't want to. I'll tell you off off radio what, <laughs> it, what I think is the best description because this is somebody I think was one of the magic creatures ever ever, ever known, and I, I loved him. But when when it, the way it would recover when we had these rifts is suddenly call out of the blue and. Not mention that there'd been a reference <clears throat> What are you doing? You know, And so he hadn't known I was going to do the play. Because it had been almost four months we hadn't spoken. And my phone didn't work backstage in this theater in San Francisco because it's all concrete walls and they exit once. And uh, and it was when he called him. He said, what are you doing? And I said, well, I'm about to open in a play. And he had a little quiet pause and he says, Doing a play for me would be like summoning up the Inquisition. (laughs) And I came to feel that way after that production was over. But I think I've got it a little out of my system. I just saw a miraculous performance by Sean Hayes, one of the greatest. He said
1: the Levant. The oh, man. my
2: God. Watching him or Mark Rylance on stage just really wants you make, you just want to put your hands in the air and say, can I be an accountant? It's so exciting and extraordinary.
1: You were talking before about freedom, and there's a section near the end where you're talking to Zelensky, and he's talking about coming here and what that did for him. I mean, we would take for granted what he saw, but there's a gleam in his eye. I like to think I can recognize acting when I see it, and I feel like that's not, that's somebody who's actually, what you might call a sense memory, that's somebody who's actually bringing something up from the depths of his soul, remembering what having his feet on the ground in New York to going out to run, what that did to him.
2: Right. There's so much about this, the experience of making Superpower that I just feel so effing lucky to have almost unthinkingly saying yes to being part of it when we were going to do the whimsical tale version i didn't have time to make this film uh, you know i had carpentry projects at home i'd been putting off and i was in a time of life where i say, you know i'm just always going when you know called and i just want to be home and but this is a, this is going to be a light carry, you know, this whimsical tale thing. We'll go in and out of Ukraine a couple of times. We'll interview this charming guy, and then stumbled into this situation, being present for this moment with this, in any way, with this young man, who's, I mean, he really is as extraordinary a person as I have ever seen, and it is exactly what you said. It's so genuine and extemporaneous. I remember saying to him, because it was really important to us, that he speak English in this film. Because he'd spoken English with me when we first met off camera. And, well, yes, sometimes the the grammar wasn't just right. It was so genuine. You knew, You knew exactly his point. On all the levels he meant it. It wasn't as if something was being lost but i think it being his third language this is not the standing that you know speaking ukrainian is also important but talking to american people right now you know to stop the bleeding i really wanted him to speak in english and i really sought to encourage him beyond just the film that there might be that i don't know if you saw his speech yesterday at the u.n there's no 200 polygraph machines that are going to get a blip on this guy. This is absolutely genuine. He owns that clear-mindedness. He has such a degree of comfort in his own skin. And this goes back to what's the point of what the work that we do. The rewards are great, sure. And nice to be rewarded for things. But the origin is to share stuff. That's what he is. And and it was what I said to him, you know, which is that it, you one got the feeling he was born for this moment, then that by that moment, I don't need just a battle and to be leading this battle, but to be representing the best of human nature. And to be in that presence makes you wanna be more engaged. What makes you wanna believe more in those things that are gonna be beneficial to our kids. You can get it, simplify, bring it down to that.
1: The movie's superpowers director is Sean Penn. Thank you so much for doing this, Sean. Always great Thank to talk you, to you.
2: Thank you, Elvis. Here. Thanks very much.
0: So, she says it's time
1: actor Sean Penn, his thoughts on Marlon Brando and Ukraine. His documentary, Superpower, now streams on Paramount+. Plus. Next, it's actor Zoe Chow of After Party and Party Down. So many parties with The Treat, someone near and dear to her heart and her art. Pass Treats at kcow.com slash treat. And also at kcrw.com, you can contribute to our Fall Pledge Drive. It's The Treatment. I'm Elvis Mitchell. Speaking of community, none is more important than family. With The Treat, actor Zoe Chow makes that clear. It was recorded before the SAG after strike.
3: This is The Treat, and I am Zoe Chow. And what I'm going to talk about is a visual artist who mainly works in uh, sculpture and video, who is a big inspiration for me and my work. And her name is Maya Chow, and she just happens to be my sister. We've collaborated on on several projects together, and I always find working with her to be a, a return home, a return to self, a return to play. And her art is so funny. It's inquisitive and self-reflective and relatable. Okay, so the first piece is called Gently Used. You can find these video works on her website at mayachow.com. So if, if you um, like rice, and our, as I do, as I do, as I do, this as be, we do, as we do, this would be and it's a- so much about play, too, you know, and, and we grew up playing together. We play so hard and so well together. And um, this piece, actually, we did Christmas of 2017 and it was the thing that kind of pulled me out of a a chapter of depression because I was really struggling with um, my career and and understanding why I had dedicated myself to acting because so much of the job is actually not acting. I didn't know I needed to find my way back to the thing that, you know, to the reason why I'm, I'm doing what I do. And... Gently used was, yeah, where I found it, back in the basement of our childhood home. Okay, so <laughs> this was <is> fun, Maya. <laughs> this is another kind of workout. <laughs> it's called push and pull. Listen. Uh, and then the second piece is called What Draws Us Together, What Drives Us Apart. We shot all over Arizona, where our granddad lived, New Hampshire, where our, our grandmother lives, Rehoboth, Massachusetts, where our parents live. New York, where we used to share an apartment. And we brought to life our favorite scenes. But when I decided to do some writing, yeah, I think I've had it with acting. I I can't handle another rejection now. Let's face it, I need to, you know, I got to latch on to something in my life. You you know, something with a future. I'm not 16 anymore. Yeah, we grew up on these these films and these ideas about what being a a woman and, and a sister is. And it's, it's a brilliant piece because it's, it's not just the scenes. It's, it's the making of these things. And you get to see sisterhood really played out. And it's the first time I've ever seen myself on screen as an adult, you know, since becoming a professional actor, that there are many moments where I'm completely unaware of the camera. And it's. It's wild you really think I'm a loser to witness it. Uh, uh, you're being ridiculous. You treat me like a loser. How? You, you never have faith in my plans. You always undercut my enthusiasm. It's really hard to forget about the camera. It's really hard not to to really let yourself play all the way and to let go of the audience. And it's wild to watch oneself really do that. And of course it's in relationship to my sister. I'm really proud of those works and she's, she's so badass.
1: Actor Zoe Chow of After Party and Party Down. Previous treats such as Timothy Oliphant star. Justify City Primeval on his favorite artist at kcrw.com slash the treat. The Treat, moments of art that create inspiration and in community from communicators of every artistic endeavor, and they're made possible by support of KCRW listeners. Join that community, contribute to KCRW's Fall Pledge Drive, and keep our unique programs thriving. Our community here, Rebecca Mooney produces edits the show and is mixed by Katie Gilchrist. Thanks to Anna Buss and Laura Kandarajan for their help. To better days, everyone,
0: I'm Elvis Mitchell. It's the treatment. KCRW sponsors include Make It Universal and Rotten Tomatoes, presenting Scene on the Screen with Jacqueline Coley, a new podcast about the people at NBC Universal and the movies that define them. Available wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts.